Thomas Harding. Got to ask you if that's a pen name. <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> uh, you can't read it without thinking of Thomas Hardy. You get that a lot, I guess. I do. I do. One of my favorite writers. Maybe maybe my parents had a, a vision of the future. Who knows? I think he's an underrated poet. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Thomas Harding is an author, journalist, and documentary filmmaker. His books have been translated into 16 languages. Among these books are the award-winning Hans and Rudolph, the German Jew, and the Hunt for the Commandant of Auschwitz. Thomas is the great-nephew of Hans Alexander, and Cadian Journal, a book about Thomas's son who died in a cycling accident about 10 years ago. Most recently, he is the author of The Maverick, George Weidenfeld and the Golden Age of Publishing, which we are here today to talk about. Welcome to The Bibliophile. Thank you. Thanks for being here. I really appreciate it. The title, uh, was it an intentional riff off Top Gun Maverick? <laughs> you know, I love that film. No, uh, I mean, I was obviously aware of the name, but no, it's actually something that George himself talked about. Um, and I think he was a proponent of the idea of not following the crowd, of making your own way, of colouring outside the lines. So that was very much something, and and I include a quote from him, which includes it in the book, yeah. There is a book, I think it was written in the 70s, uh, called Maverick Publishers, and it it has chapters on six or seven Mm, Mavericks. mm. But I guess I would take issue with that term, Maverick, the, t- the top three novels that you identify as as being his legacy, he didn't publish any of those first. Well, I mean, in terms of his role as a publisher, he started in uh, 1949. He, he died in 2016. So over 6,000 books were published during his period. Association, I guess, with his company, Weidenfeld and Nicholson. Many of them you know, were books that they originated. Some of them were books that he acquired. You know, one of the most famous books was Lolita. Uh, And uh, he very much was at the center of the publishing of that book because it was banned in Britain and around the Commonwealth. So I would challenge your issue. (laughs) It uh, It was published in Paris in 1955 and in the States in by Putnam, wasn't it, in 55? It, so it was certainly published before in a limited, years. really limited edition in France. Uh, and But the publication in certainly in Britain was banned and around the Commonwealth. And yes, it had been published in the States prior to that. But he, he, he had an instrumental role. It wasn't banned in the States like it was banned in Britain. Okay, so what's so maverick about publishing books that have lots of sex in them? I I don't think it's about publishing books which have lots of sex in them. It's about, he would say, it's about choosing literary greatness, about being having the ability to see beyond the trends, the fashions of the day, and to recognize, I guess you could call it artistic genius, great literary talent, works that would last and have lasted, right? Yeah, um, for decades. Yeah. And, and I think so the extraordinary thing, I think if you look at his books, I mean, I said that he's he was associated with a publication of over 6000 books, but so many of the books have lasted. I talk about this in the book. I think he had some kind of secret source. I, I don't know if you call it a perspicacity or a vision or a touch or an instinct to be able to see these books, whether it is Isaiah Berlin's Hitchcock and the Fox or whether it be. Double Helix, Double Helix by James Watson, or The Group by Mary McCarthy, and, and, and on and on and on. He was able to publish these books and fight for them. And his, he was not a line editor. He, he was not a man who kind of, and there are some publishers, I'm, I'm looking forward to having, getting into detail with you, but he was not a, a publisher who really got out his red pen. Another example, he was sitting at a dinner in the 1950s by this guy with a thick accent. George himself was from a refugee Jew from Austria. This other guy was clearly, you know, from Germany. 
And uh, sometimes during the dinner, he said, well, do you have an interesting book? You know, I'm always looking for books. Do you have an interesting book? And the guy goes, actually, as it happens, I do. And he had a copy with him. And he said, I've tried to publish this, this again and again in the States, and I've been rejected by eight publishers. And this guy was some unknown academic from Harvard, quite erudite, obviously very intelligent. Well, it turned out it was Henry Kissinger. And, 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 and George was the first person to publish that book. He had a lifelong relationship with him. And, you know, Henry Kissinger thanked him uh, over, over his career. And, and I, I saw letters where he did it personally to George. So again, he showed an ability to see extraordinary writing. And I, I'm really fascinated by that. I imagine you would be as well. What makes a great book? But then separately, in addition, how do those books get published? Because so many books are great and they don't get published. And when they are published, they don't find an audience. And even when they find an audience, they don't get lost. You know, they run out of, go out of print. And those questions are really, partly as a writer, <laughs> I'm interested. But also, they just, I just think it's interesting. Yeah. It, in fact, you suggest that you have an answer to that question. And uh, early on, you talk about uh, the fact that, that this is a, an investigation into publishing and the, and the dark arts. So what are the dark arts? What are they? <laughs> well, I'd be really interested. To know, I mean, you've been at this for a while. I'd love to know what you think. I mean, I, I spoke to lots of people. I spoke to one bookseller. I think booksellers have quite a lot of insight into this, don't they? They have the day to day. They meet the the book buyers. They talk to the the people representing the publishing firms, the distributors. And, and I asked him this question. Uh, he runs John Sando Books in London. Yeah, and wonderful, wonderful. Lift. John, John, yeah. And, yeah. and, and I asked book. him about this. He said, they just know <laughs> that when there are certain books, and it doesn't happen very often, where there's just an excitement around yeah. the publication. It, you can see it in the packaging. You can see it in... Uh, the quality of the paper you can see it in the energy the juice that the booksellers walk into their door uh the bell rings you know they come in and they say this is the one that you've got to get there's an excitement about a book and he said that's contagious but first of all the publisher has to feel that and then absolutely, convey absolutely. it and convey I, it I can tell you as a writer yeah. <laughs> who's experienced yeah. that when you don't get that from your other books it's <laughs> crushing and there's almost nothing you can do. And yeah. you can whine and you can complain. And You, you mean like Bellow, like Saul Bellow. Exactly, exactly. Saul Bellow, who was, again, published by George in the fascinating relationship over the years. One of the best chapters, I think, by Thank the way. You. Thank you. I appreciate that. You know, the, I mean, the other, the other answer to that question is, you know, what makes... What, how does a great book get recognized? And I think this is what George had. He would get a grip on it. He would say, this, I'm going to fight for this one. You saw it with um, the Mitford book. This is a book about yeah. Unity Mitford uh, in the 70s by David Price Jones. Uh, Unity Mitford was one of the Mitford sisters. She was in love with Adolf Hitler. And it came at a time in British history where the aristocratic class who had so supported the fascists in Britain in the 1930s, which really hadn't really been discussed in Britain by the 1970s. There was this like dark, se hidden secret. This book came out and really flushed it out and, and, and put, pointed the finger directly at this upper class in Britain. This is the thing with these, these top books that you identified uh, as his legacy. You know, Lolita, uh, The Double Helix and The Group. They're all sort of sexual. There's this sort of a sensation around them. So it's he's he's definitely chasing that kind of buzz. He was commercial, absolutely, and he was incredibly savvy. He understood the power of the newsprint. He understood how important it was to get publicity and marketing. But I don't think he was kind of lowest common denominator. So, for example, he didn't. He never took the easy route. Again, I think this is really curious. So he was highly criticised by many of his peers for publishing really early on, not long after the Second World War, many books by Nazis, former Nazis. Yeah. And this was not an easy route for him. But sensational though, right? It was controversial. I wouldn't say sensational, I'd say controversial, which means I think, doesn't that mean important? Doesn't that mean interesting? Doesn't that mean yeah. probably going to gain traction in the media? Not a criticism. No, yeah. no, I'm not taking it as a, I'm not defending him, but it's, I, I think it's, it shows again, com commercial savvy. And yeah. But many of his books were not. Um, so one of the things that he did 
do, especially in the post-war years, was team up with a bunch of historians and, and their books. And I don't think those were commercially savvy. I mean, I, I mentioned already Isaiah Berlin's book, The Hedgehog and the Fox. Yeah, mm. This was kind of slightly remote, high kind of, I don't know, thinking investigation about Tolstoy and uh, right. some kind of parlor game, like working out which kind yeah. of animal you were. No, no one, I don't think would have imagined that would have been commercially successful. And uh, Isaiah Berlin, the philosopher in Oxford, came up with this terribly long, unattractive title. And then George said, no, no, let's call it The Hedgehog and the Fox. Yeah. And that was his huge contribution. I think it's difficult to make broad strokes, isn't it, about somebody's career who lasted so long. I think, he, yes, he was commercially savvy. Yes, he understood how to use the media. But there were many projects which weren't necessarily, you know, I mean, all the Eric Hobsbawm books, I wouldn't have thought those would be commercially successful, but they were. You know, so, I mean, yes and no. Well, it really comes through uh, how complex a character he he is in the reactions of uh, all sorts of different people to him. Can I ask you a question? What did you, did you like him? What, what was your impression of him? I was torn. There's this one line that maybe it's famous. He talks to Cornelius Ryan about why an ugly, fat man is able to get so many beautiful women and and he delivers the line that he's the Nijinsky of Cunnilingus. And when he said that, I'm thinking, okay, he's got a good sense of humor. Yeah. Maybe it's a, a lad's sense of humor. I, I kind of liked him for his sense of humor and his sexuality. You know what? I, I have one of the things which really, it crept up on me. I mean, he was sexually very, very active. He told, I think, his daughter that he, when he used to go to sleep, he didn't used to count. Yeah. He used to count his sexual conquests. I mean, it's not very attractive. No, it's not. It's kind of ignorant yeah, and macho. Exactly. And uh, why would why would you tell people that if you if you weren't insecure in your own? Sexuality? Well, this is the point. Well, this is the point. And I think I tried right. to get. I, I tried to get to that in the book, which I think, I think he was. By all accounts, one of the most sociable networking people on earth. I mean, his Rolodex was an extraordinary in terms of the presidents, prime ministers, kings and queens. I I, I found these in his archive. I found his private archive. And the, yeah, um, who, who? Sorry, Thomas. Who who sold that archive to that Irish bookseller? Uh, who then well, sold it to Princeton? I mean, what, I mean what that's that a whole about? different story. Let me just get to that in a second. I will. But yeah, okay. I was just going to say in in his private archive were lists of his. He had three gatherings a day. He had a breakfast, lunch, maybe sometimes tea and dinner. And even after dinner, there'd be people yeah. who'd come for the after party. He was such right. a socialite. And yet he was so lonely. He was a chronically yeah. lonely character. So I think that's why I think I was interested in him. I mean, on the archives, I mean, let me just let me tell you the story. So when I, I got into this project, I'd never written a biography before. I, normally I write narrative nonfiction. And I got a phone call out of the blue from the chairperson of Weidenfeld and Nicholson. This is the company that George Weidenfeld ran. Yeah. And said, hey, Thomas, I like your work. Would you be interested in writing a biography of George Weidenfeld? And I was like, well, first of all, there's so many other people. Why are you not choosing them? I, didn't, I never met the guy. Surely there's. And he said, no, that's why we're interested. I said, OK, I, let me think about it. I came back to him. There's, a, there's a family connection, too, isn't there? Your family connection to him somehow. Well, we share a family background. So my family were German Jewish. We were refugees from Germany. His was Austrian Jewish. But I've never but, met there's him. something closer than that, too, though, isn't there? Something about a property or something? Or um, yeah, I mean, the only thing that's close, I mean, not really that he when he arrived in London, he used to hang out in my family's um hotel in oh. the in the reception area. But I mean, I I don't think there was anything closer to that. But we shared a similar background, cultural background. But then I called my publisher back and I said, look, uh, this is this is great. I'd love to do it. But, you know, tell me about what you've got. Do you have any assets? Do you have any? What, tell me about the archives. Where can I see? And, the, and they said, oh, well, I'm sorry. We we don't have any archives. We lost them. I said, what are you talking? You lost the archives. And he said, well, we used to have these archives yeah. and all the publishing files. Because, you know, publishers have publishing files. Each book typically would have a file with not just the contract, but the letters between the authors. I mean, yeah. they're fascinating. Yeah, they are drafts of the We've done a whole episode on that we did a whole episode on that marketing materials these days pnls profit loss statements covers cover designs you know all these really interesting things and quite a few there might be a if you're lucky a libel you know read where (laughs) lawyers kind of look through this thing 
you know, and, and some of the, these are the dark secrets. You asked about the dark arts. This is where yeah. you would, I said, I'm sorry, we lost it. I'm like, what? I said, okay, fine. I said, how'd they lose it? I'll tell you in a second. And then I said, and then I said, so <laughs> send me over your list of books. He said, no, I'm sorry. We don't have a list. Of, I said, what do you mean you have a list of books? You must have a back catalogue. Luckily, I, I, I did some research and it turned out that because, you know, in the churn of publishing, especially, I guess, in the 80s and 90s, there's all these consolidations. They decided to downsize their storage in a cost cutting exercise, you know, mm. downsize their storage area. And they had it down Little Hampton near Brighton. And, you know, there was boxes falling over and letters spilling out. And so they had a uh, book specialist um, come in and value it. And then they sold it to Kenny's, which is, you know, this big yeah. bookshop in, Gla- in Galway. If you've been Who's you know, they, though, Thomas? Who's they? That, oh, I'm sorry. The um, well, Biden Nicholson. Biden no, but was it was it George? No, no, no. By that stage, he ha- was basically retired. I mean, he was an emeritus figure. Okay. Um, this is in the 2000s. Wouldn't you think and, that he'd be a bit ticked off about that? Well, he, I mean, I, that's another interesting question. We're kind of going side tangents, but. I was told by so many people he didn't care about the past. He didn't collect his letters. He never wrote letters, people say. But actually, again, that wasn't true. Just to finish on the archive, Kenny's then valued it and then sold it to Princeton University, Mm. luckily. And when I got and then I luckily got through it and there was 405 boxes. And it was like this extraordinary um, repository of right. letters from, you know, whether it be Saul Bellow or Mary McCarthy or Nabokov or... It's a national treasure that went and I, over And the I was ocean. the first one to get through it. And, you know, I got there, nothing nothing was organised. You know, hopefully you'd think there'd be like a reading like list. You go in... It was totally randomised from what kind of photocopy we should buy. Somebody's broken into somebody's car on the parking lot. Nabokov is coming to tea. We need to get a room for um, Saul Bellow. You know, he's perving over some young woman. You know, and then and it just just the whole, the, all to, to kind of company accounts. I mean, the whole thing was a mess. Fascinating. I spent a month. But then I found, when I got back to London, that he, George had his own private archive. So he had kept stuff. I and I only found out through his former secretary, and she said it, she she said I don't know where it is, but maybe it has to do with this company. I found that it was is in a storage area, and that the company had been paying for it for over a decade and didn't know it was George's. They had so many boxes they didn't know it was George's private archive, and that's mm-hmm. why I found things like his private letters to various members of the royal family and his kind of seating arrangements at his uh, dinners, but also his diaries, like literally annotated diaries. But th- this is who I met. This is where you know why I met them. Right. Where's um, that now? Uh, that's now um, back with the, with the publishing house. That that's valuable. That's valuable cultural history. I mean, Tell me really. About Tell me about yeah. it. And. I mean, there was some, for example, just for example, some this could be somebody's PhD at some stage. John Berger wrote a book called um, G, which mm. won the Booker Prize. In the Princeton Archive, there's a whole file with his discussion about the book, detailed discussions about why he wrote it, how he wrote it, why he edited it, how he edited it, backwards, forwards with the editors. I mean, an extraordinarily rich mine of information about this great literary work, which is kind of largely forgotten, I think. It's just there waiting for someone to enjoy <laughs> and right. do something with. So there are these, even though it's now all these decades later, there are these opportunities for people. We talk, you talk about his his private life being quite public. He had four marriages, relations with staff members and, and many others. The big question, today's question or, en- or any age's question should uh. be, was it consensual? Was it? Yeah. Was it consensual? Was it? What was the power relationship? And, and then the other question, which I struggled with, was: Should you? Can you apply today's values on yesterday? And I started when I started with this. Whenever I'd say I'm writing this book, the first people would say is: Are you going to write about the women? <laughs> are you going to talk about him and sex? Yeah. That's what yeah. people were fascinated with, which I yeah. found a little. I don't know, off-putting. And I actually didn't want to go there for a long time. I didn't, I said, everyone else is fascinated by that. I just want to get to the other stuff. And then I got towards the end of the project. And I was like, okay, I really need to face up to this because people yeah. are going to ask about it. Yeah. And then, well, what well, is going to help you? I mean, it's a, it's, by the way, it's a great read. It's a, your book is fun to, fun to you. read. 
and and largely because of the women. Well, I mean, this is the point. And so by that stage, I guess one of the reasons I felt more able to write about this side of him was because by that stage, I'd met some of the the women in his life who had nothing to do with his romance. And I mean, one of them particularly was this extraordinary editor who was working with him in, I guess, the 60s, 70s and 80s. And she had such a profound effect on him. And she was the one who had, you know, who kept the relationship, for example, with Saul Bellow. And, and they got themselves into some kind of triangular uh, yeah, relationship. she betrayed him, you say. She betrayed him, basically. And she called herself Machiavellian. You wrote a tw- Did she write a 20 or 40 page letter to Bellow? To yes. Keep him? Yeah, yeah. So all those letters were in Princeton. Yeah. So they literally, and they, because Bella was bitching about, you know, yeah. the cover's not good. It's too dewy, he said. And the title and the sales weren't good enough. And they weren't taking good enough care about him and just complaining and complaining. And it was her job to not just take care of him logistically, but also editorially. And then George flew over to America, met with him, and, and was able to, I mean, I think it showed extraordinary uh, salesmanship. George's part because for 10 years Saul Bellow tried to leave <laughs> you know and you, it was chronicled you saw in the yes. letters and these yes. are in Princeton it's um, again it's a it's an exercise in in how a, a publisher keep well it's one of his jewels and a big big money generator I'm so glad him. you said that because yeah. I don't think people understand the many aspects of publishing and this was definitely one of them okay so you've got this award winning multi award winning yeah. best selling author who wants to leave. And as a publisher, more than anything else, your job is to keep them. The thing that's a, a little bit disturbing is it, it, George comes off as someone who's trying to set, set Bellow up with women. Yeah, so there's a little bit of that. Um, I don't think that Saul Bellow needed any help with that. I mean, from no. the biographies <laughs> I've read, you know, I think he was quite in his own right. I think he had his own issues. But you're asking about the writing about Georgian women. You know, what I got to, I think, in the end was there was different different reactions. So you had a group of women who are still alive, a lot of them, who just yeah. adore George, who worked with him professionally, who socialized with him who were in his milieu, in his kind of surroundings. And they just thought he was incredible. Uh, this charismatic, highly intelligent, funny, yeah. gossiping, yeah. Uh, supportive, professionally. And connected, obviously. Connected, entertaining, lifelong friends. So you've got that group. And then there's another group who worked with him early on, who some of them are still alive, who basically would described him as what we might call today as handsy, as boundary crossing, touching of arms, touching of legs, not being respectful of their professional work. Today, very distasteful. And then there's another group of women, younger women, who just found him creepy. Yeah, so so how close to Weinstein is he? I don't think, yeah. So if you think about it as a sliding scale, yeah. I, I yeah. don't think he was on the Weinstein kind of level. But at the same time, I think, you know, there was questions to answer for sure. And, yeah. and he comes across as you know, creepy. And today, I think a lot of his behavior would be totally unacceptable. For example, there's this one woman I spoke to who was one of his editors who worked on the Kurt Waldheim book, The Former President of Austria, which is a whole different story. And she she was basically saying, look, I'm struggling to work. I can't afford, I've got, as an editor, I'm going to get a second job. And George said, well, why don't you just ask your dad for money? And she was like, well, he died. And so then he said, well, why don't I ask your boyfriend? It's like, totally, that would never be allowed today. So some of these things, you know, very much not acceptable. And and a lot of the women, very powerful women today, would say today and told me repeatedly how much they loved him, admired him, respected him, were grateful to him and said that he was a remarkable person in their lives. So I tried to portray it as a complex, mixed picture. This is why it's so difficult to come up with any kind of judgment of him. But distasteful, this, this, this part of it, I think. I mean, Barbara Waters, who is one of his great friends, says there was like 10, there was 10 sides to him. You know, Ariana Huffington is another one who absolutely adored him, who admired him and was very grateful for what he did. And while we're talking about this, let me just talk about the men, because one of the... Something very surprising I found with George, and I've never experienced this before, was how many men I found who, when I interviewed them, these would be men in their 60s and 70s and 80s now, who said, and they used this word, they loved him. And this was, I would say, four or five men I spoke to 
who said not only did he have a huge impact on their lives, not only did he, you know, were they incredibly grateful, but they loved him. I, I think that says a lot about a person. Mm-hmm. I think just the, the number of friends that he had, this is mm. really, when you think about what, what makes for a, for a happy life, it's, it's, it's rich, meaningful relationships with people. Yeah. And yeah. boy, he seemed to have a lot of that. He had a he lot of did. enemies too. He did, but he also had enemies and he had yeah. and he bore a grudge. He was a real yeah. grudge bearer. Right. And he would cut people out. If they crossed him, if he felt they were disloyal, they were gone. So that's why I think he's he makes for an interesting read because he was both, I think he's both a very attractive character, charismatic, yeah. telling, but also distasteful and um unattractive. Yeah. And I don't know if he's a great publisher or not. What characteristics did he like, have that enabled him to be such a impactful publisher? Well, I, I think he I think he was a great publisher, both in terms of the titles that he championed, in terms of longevity, in terms yeah. of the work he did. Um, I mean, I mean, specifically, he, as we've spoken about, he um, published some great books, which, uh, you know, we can go through. He also you know, uh, was a leader in this idea of co-production. Actually, I thought that Paul ha- uh, Hamlin should get most of the credit for that. I think that's true, George. but I think that's more for like the art books, as I understand. No, I, I know. But George still, did, the took, I think George took that over to... Yeah, academic history non. It's my understanding. No. I, I was told time and time and again that George does deserve credit for that. Credit, okay. Uh, okay. I, my understanding also is that you know he was a real leader in the. I mean, he really fought for and um, to protect independent the independent houses. He really. I mean, the fact that Vandenfeld and Nicholson still exists today. Isn't it just exactly what George didn't want it to be? A couple of a couple of rooms along a corridor. No, it's more than a couple of rooms along a corridor, and it has its own imprint. And uh, you know, it's what is it? it's coming up for this? I think it's the seventy fifth anniversary this year, uh, and it has a, it has a distinct history and tradition. But yes, it's part of a multinational now. You know, is it any different than I don't know Hutchison Heinemann in Penguin Random House? I mean, I think they're now very similar. You know, these these imprints, which are these very historic legacy publishing houses, which have become absorbed into these larger and I, you know, I think this is it's the it's the economics of today isn't it when the amazons yeah. and these huge yeah. multinationals very hard to compete speaking of legacy uh, were you hi- like were you hired were you paid a fee or were you paid in advance no so i was this is i was paid in advance um it was not an authorized biography the publishing house Vinepel Nicholson published it so it's about their founder but they i had total editorial control they never once right. told me i can't do something that was actually in my contract i said yeah. you can't, yeah. you and the family can't do it and i have to say they were really good about that and i came up yeah. with some stuff which is not necessarily that attractive uh, yes you they, do you do yes and this, this is what makes it interesting yeah, and so I think they were quite brave. Um, yeah, maybe it's been yeah. sufficient time now because their company is still called Weidenfeld and Nicholson. It's partly about his treatment of women, but it's also his slipperiness when it comes to business. One of the things I found out that, you know, he received money. He, effectively, his business was subsidized by the CIA for a period of time. Yes, you know, and he must have known that. I mean, you leave it oh, out of question, Absolutely. but it's obvious he knew that. Absolutely. And, yeah. and those were the circles he was swimming in. It was part of that post-war anti-communist network that he was, he belonged to. And they, they all knew what was going on. And they spoke about it. I mean, he, there was yeah. a letter from Mary McCarthy to George where she talks about this. And this is after yeah. the Encounter magazine. Uh, but, you know, so so there was there was various aspects of his life that if they would wanted to, they could have said no, but they didn't. You build the book or structure the book around 19 of the books that that uh, Weidenfeld and Nicholson published uh, out of the 6,000, starting off uh, with uh, Arthur's diary, which is which is his mother's journal right around when he was born. And she writes, we thank God for each moment we are blessed with you. It seems to me like there was love there, and there's a lovely photograph there. Why does he feel so lonely and unloved is it was he just left alone by the parents 
there's a danger of over kind of yeah. psychoanalyzing people, yeah. isn't there, as a biographer? Of I mean, course. it's tempting. It's tempting. <laughs> uh, I'm not a trained psycho psychiatrist, psychotherapist. However, we do know a few things. We do know he gave some interviews um, towards the end of his life where he said that he was unbelievably lonely. And, and and so, for example, he'd be in bed at 11.30 at night calling his friends, desperate for them to come over to talk to him, to read to him, yeah. to meet him in bed. He was chronically a lonely person. And I was trying to work out what the roots were, because I think he he was very fond of his parents. Uh, I, I think that when he had to flee Austria after the Nazis took over the country, he was only 19 years old. He arrives in England with no relatives, friends, money, contacts, barely spoke the language i think that was difficult for him and then his parents came over and he effectively had to be the parent to them he lost yeah. members of his family in the holocaust it one of two of his grandmothers he never really talked about it so i think you know that was very difficult for him but then yeah. i was trying to get my head around it and and i i saw a video i was given a copy of a video that a guy called Matthias Doffner had made Matthias yeah. Doffner is now the head of uh axel springer which owns politico he bought politico for a billion dollars you know, and they, they were close at the end, weren't they? Very, very close to yeah. George. George described him as the son he never had. And Matthias yeah. says, you're the brother I never had. But, right. but, but Matthias said, you know, he's very, very close. He thinks about George every day. He imagines talking to him. And um, Matthias Doffner made this video. One thing that George did throughout his life, he would have people, encourage people, would thank people for making either books about him or collecting remembrances, these private things, they weren't published. And then Matthias made this, I think it was her 90th birthday or 95th birthday. He made this docu documentary. And in this, there were these appallingly fawning interviews with Shimon Perez and Angela Merkel and the great and the good who George knew, saying how wonderful he was. And it was, you know, it's really vomit worthy and totally hagiographic and not helpful at yeah. all for someone who's trying to write a book. But there was this one two minute bit which I had to watch like five times because I it was very, very, you know, sometimes you see something like what? And then you go back and you go back. And in it, George and Matthias are walking through the streets of Vienna where George grew up. And Matthias is very tall, maybe, I don't know, six foot four, six foot five. And George is quite was quite small. And by that say he's shrunken. So let's say five foot three, five foot four. So like little and large. And they're going through. And also George is quite ample and Matthias is stick thin so they're going through these kind of streets and they go under an arch to this courtyard and Matthias says what's this place and George says well this is where I grew up this apartment I grew up in and Matthias says so what was it like and George said well I was there with my parents and uh, this nanny and it was awful you know there's a shift in tone a shift and George said well when my parents used to socialize they used to go out at night my nanny used to look after me and then my nanny would have a boyfriend come over, lock me in the bedroom, and then have sex in the living room. You can imagine that it being quite difficult for a child, for a young child, yeah. sense of abandonment, sense of impropriety, yeah. of something underhand. And I think that was it. That was, and even if it wasn't the the incident, the rosebud moment, I think it, it was at least it's an example of what it was like for him growing up. Does that mean that without those incidents, he wouldn't be lonely? No, probably he was had a propensity towards loneliness, would be my guess. But those experiences amplified them. It would be my kind of non-expert guess. But certainly what we do know is he was chronically, extraordinarily lonely. Desperate efforts at socialization, including, I think that's one of the reasons he was a publisher. I mean, a publisher is someone who makes yeah. things public and connecting and connecting people he sees books as connecting people he used to like he liked to think of himself as a bridge builder he collected pictures of the popes the pontiff the bridge the, the bridge building people yeah. and he connected himself with that and he saw himself as that kind of person and later on in life he was very politically active i don't really get into this in the book but behind he was a kind of behind the scenes guy he introduced tony blair to chancellor cole for example and very involved with israel and connecting people and supporting israel to a fault right i mean this, this is another i think the most interesting chapter with uh max hastings oh, yeah. who this is, uh, again, and this is, I think, proof that you're not just a vanity 
project. Maybe you could tell me briefly about about. Yeah, so so if you remember that the hostages were taken um, to Entebbe in the seventies in Uganda, and the Israelis mounted this extraordinary rescue mission where they they rescued the hostages who are mostly Israeli, and you know this is worldwide news. Uh, one of the soldiers who took part in the rescue was the brother of Bibi Netanyahu, the current prime minister of Israel. His name was Yoni, Jonathan. Soon afterwards, the family who knew George, who were friendly with George, asked him to write a biography of Yoni. And Yoni approached Max Hastings, who at the time was a very young journalist, later, you know, very well-known journalist. Max Hastings said, sure, I'll do it. And he said, I, I want to make sure that I have open access, editorial control. And George was like, sure, sure, sure. And then yeah. through his contacts, because George had these extraordinary contacts in Israel, because the first year after Israel became an independent country, he had been the chief of staff of the then president. Yes, yes he, he kind of bailed on, he bailed on Nigel Nicholson, but I, I will get back to that. Yeah, yeah. So he had these extraordinary contacts, including Shimon Peres. And Shimon Peres said, look, we'll open the doors for Max Hastings. Max Hastings goes to Israel, has this remarkable time as a young journalist. He, he meets all the secret units. He gets access to the files. The, the generals kind of talk what, to him. What does he put like, in his book? What does he put in his book that's so upsetting to the Israelis? Well, what happens is he writes a draft and he writes it as it is, which is basically... Yoni wasn't well respected. He wasn't a good leader. He was academically unsuccessful. Contrary to all the kind of myths that the family had had or was building around Yoni, and which became really important for Bibi Netanyahu, by the way, later on. The the story about his brother dying at Entebbe was fundamental, foundational to Netanyahu's yes. rise to power, and it still is. And yes. they they said we're not having it. And Max Hastings says tough luck i'm doing it send the manuscript to george and george said thank you great 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 give it leave it with me he then sent it to the censors in israel and to the family and they said no and george went back to max hastings and said you're going to have to change this and max yeah. said what are you talking about i'm not a citizen of israel i'm i'm you, i'm a i'm in brit i'm in i'm a british writer and george said no if you don't if you don't change it i'm not going to pay your advance so he blackmails him it's timing, unconscionable. And I think as a publisher, the role of a publisher, surely, we've talked about one of the roles, which is championing the book, kind of marketing the book, about selecting the title, about keeping the author, as in Sorbella, but isn't one of the other tasks to protect the author, to protect the work? And George, this is an example of George absolutely putting the priorities of his author below his other personal Interest, which Personal, is yeah, case, ideology or whatever Israel. you want to call it. Yeah, Israel, yeah. right? Prime Zionist, which is a whole different thing. Fascinating, distasteful, not attractive. And in the end, Max, to his great shame, he wrote about this, to his great shame. He, he published the book, took a third of the book out, published the book, was embarrassed about it. So much so that when he wrote his own autobiography in 2000, he dedicated an entire chapter to this whole episode, this whole yeah. story episode. Yeah. But I think yeah. it does show a really interesting aspect of George, but also the widening publishing endeavor, which is the role of the publisher, the editors, the publishing house to defend. And I've, you know, I've personally experienced this, you know, yeah. the role of... Well, so interesting in these files that I was given access to. Which is, to, to sorry, Thomas, to, to defend the... The truth as that author sees it. The truth as the author sees it, to defend the, the author's writing, their literary endeavor, yeah. the project as a whole, you know. Right. And one of the things I got access to were these libel readings where another aspect of publishing that people often don't know about is especially in nonfiction books. Before a book is published, the publisher, the editor, gives the manuscript to a lawyer. Yeah. lawyers and there's what's called a legal read and i've experienced this time and time and again and they come back with often the most ridiculous things and then there's a conversation about what to do about it do you cut the thing out do you kind of find a different way of doing with it i mean in the double helix you know when james watson yeah. which went on to be a massive bestseller he yeah. famously goes after Rosalind Franklin, who doesn't he doesn't give any credit any credit to in his book, he writes appallingly misogynistic sentences about Rosalind Franklin. I mean, it's just breathtakingly terrible. This had been picked up in the legal read. I saw the legal read, and they say, "Look, you can't include this. You can't. You're, it's defamatory. You're going to liable yeah. her." Yeah. And James yeah. Watson said, 
uh-uh, she's dead. You can't libel a dead person. And so it gets stayed in. And that shows you a few things. One is it shows the process, but it also shows, you know, how the libel laws affects the outcome, literary outcome, what's actually being seen on the page, yeah. as well as, of course, his own lack of, you know, I would say morality and values, because it's totally appalling what he did. Well, it's one of these ends justifies the means kind of situations, I think. It's like uh, his his end is justifying his behavior toward Hastings. It's a bit like Kissinger with order being more important than justice. Yeah. So I would say that what the Hastings episode showed, what, what happened with the, with the book about Yoni Netanyahu, was that, and people said to me, this is true, that publishing was very important to him, but politics was more important. So, And in politics comes things like Zionism, uh, but it also comes other aspects of his life. I mean, for example, he was elected the House of Appointed elected, he became a member of the House of Lords. He was very proud of that. And I found a copy of his speech to the House of Lords, which was about the state of Israel and about Europe's support of the state of Israel. And he was encouraging the European countries to give more support to Israel. And in the speech was various points, bullet points. And he had shared the speech with the Israeli embassy before he gave it. And they yeah. had actually suggested four items. And he, he, he adopted verbatim their language. I'm, I mean, that is just a, shocking <laughs> to me. I mean, maybe I'm yeah. naive yeah. to have <laughs> the influence of a foreign country so directly affect the writing of a speech for the House of Lords. But I think that shows you again that as a publisher, you know, he, yes, he was interested in books and literary merit and authors and the social aspect and business, but more important to him, more important was Israel. And and yeah. isn't that true of any publisher? They've all got their own private, however, however much they're going to tell you they don't, they've all got their own private endeavours, interests, Bias. Yeah, I mean, it all screws up in who they who they decide to work with. Absolutely. I, I mean, you could see yeah. it today, whether it be, you know, I mean, we can talk about council culture, about what does or does not get published. You can see it in terms of uh, the diversity of authors today and various choices being made, where the money goes for marketing. Uh, you can see it in terms of the editors who are selected. I mean, all the decisions by publishers are influenced by their values, their values and where money is coming from. And where oh. money is coming from, exactly. And that's part of their values, right? So yeah. if if they want, if the, their value is commercial success above all else, that can affect the kind of authors they're going to publish. It can affect the kind of material they're going to publish. It can affect the backlist. Do do authors from 20 years ago go out who've got now out of style, do they drop them? Because they don't have any long-term vision. And this, you're seeing this time and time again today in publishing. So many authors who were lauded only a decade ago, you can't get their books anymore. It's impossible to find them because publishers like, you know, it's not it's not what people are interested in today. And that's interesting to me. I mean, that's interesting. It's a it's a bit like, uh, I wouldn't say it's a tragedy, but it's like, you know, it's sort of like there's wonderful parts and there's evil, good and evil <laughs> at play in this in this person. Right. I mean, you, you, you've spent a lot of time thinking about the publishing in industry and about how it works. Do you think that through his story, it's possible to get a, an insight into the history, or a, not the history, a history of publishing and get a better understanding of how publishing worked over the period of his life? Well, this is, I should, Thomas, say that I was a bit disappointed in each, at the beginning of each chapter, you have a quote from him about publishing. And yeah. they were banal, uniformly banal, I thought. Oh. Okay. I I didn't get much insight into the publishing world. They were kind of platitudes. Uh huh. Well, okay. I, I'm saying, and the book was a a really good read. Thank you. But those, and I was also, you know, you keep hearing about how charming and scintillating his conversation was. That doesn't seem to work itself into the book too much either. I don't I didn't see him coming up with any wonderful, brilliant statements or right. quotes. Well, maybe Why I not? could have done maybe I could have done better about that. I mean, I certainly found him in his speeches, in his the way that he dealt with the authors and his his staff. You know, he had extraordinary talent in terms of bringing in 
Yeah, Skip so he must have been. He must do. have been brilliant. He must have been a brilliant conversationalist. No, I think I he didn't... was. I think he was a brilliant conversationalist, and he was also a really good speaker, like a, a make giver of speeches. I mean, in terms of, I mean, he was invited time and time again back to the Frankfurt Book Fair. He opened up the Frankfurt Book Fair. So I think I disagree with you. I think some of the things he talked about at the Frankfurt Book Fair and some of his speeches that he gave, I think are interesting about publishing. I mean, I think yeah. so. Towards the end of his book, towards the end of his life, he. He, and I think this is not surprising. He got a little tired, and 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 when I spoke to some of the editors he worked with, you know, some of his choices weren't so great anymore. You know, he'd kind of lost his magic touch. He'd he'd suggest various authors, and they'll go like, no. I actually met an author who met who pitched to him right towards the end of his life, and the book went on to be a really important book, not only selling well but important. And he turned it down. So he he did turn lost, lose his touch towards the end of his life. Right. But he was brilliant at inventing books. I think someone said it. David Price Jones said that he that he went to a funeral, a memorial service with George, and they were out in the car park parking lot afterwards. And George was like saying, I wonder if that person could write a book. And I wonder if that I mean he was constantly coming up with ideas, suggesting and as a I have to tell you as a writer, that is wonderful. When your editor comes to you and doesn't just say, pitch me an idea, but here's a couple of ideas which you might want to think about. That's such a blessing as a writer. Not only because it means you have kind of a partnership uh, and buy-in, but also, and also that they often, the publisher has a better sense of the market side of things, the marketing side, you know, who might be the readers, but also it's just great to have that creative input. Mm. And he was very, very good at that. Yeah. Uh, constantly thinking about ideas through his networking, through his social engagements, have you thought about this idea? Have you wouldn't you? And then putting an idea, pairing an idea with a person. He was yes. very, very good at that. Many publishers don't do that. Yes, yes, he took the initiative. Yeah, he was also good at getting bailed out because there was often often crises, and he was able to. He was a great salesman who was able to convince people to support his his vision, his mission. Well, I had a really interesting conversation with a, a publisher who's very successful today of an independent press in England about this. And he was asking me, and he said he liked the book. He really liked the book, but he was saying, was was George a good business person? And we had a kind yeah. of backwards and forwards. And yeah. I said, well, look, on the one hand, his business was kept on running out of money and he'd have to team up with a new investor or he'd have to marry into money or he'd kind of find some way of making it right. On the other hand, his publishing company lasted more than 70 mm. years. It's still in existence. Yeah. That's an extraordinary thing in itself. Many of his books were fabulous bestsellers. And yes, he had a very extravagant lifestyle. He had this remarkable apartment on the River Thames. He would fly around the world. He enjoyed his comfort. But that doesn't mean necessarily he didn't necessarily drain the company for that. You know, there was, he no. had income from other sources. And according to one person who's a really, I quote in the book, who is himself an, a very, very successful business person, one of the richest people in Britain, he said that George was the best salesman he'd ever met in his yeah. life. And salesman is different from business person, isn't it? And mm -hmm. you see that in the way that he kept Saul Bellow in the business. You can see that in the way that he was able to, I think, punch above his weight. Excuse the pun. You know, he's able to kind of reach out and... Because they he was never it was never a large business compared to other companies. You know, the no. Randomses, the Penguins, the, the Simon and Schusters, he was the Heinemans, the Collins. He was never that, that size. But his he had, he I think compared to his size, comparative his size, compared to similar type publishing houses of, of his size, I think they really were successful, not only in terms of Booker Prize winners and in terms of industri industry influence, in terms of titles which were well known and successful. The range of books I talked earlier about academic books, but you know their fiction list was very impressive. They had a, a picture book. They they did um travel books, um sports books, biographies. You know on and on. They had a very wide list. They weren't just mm -hmm. narrowly focused on one thing. I think you know. I think you could say it's impressive. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. I mean, his his life was. <laughs> driven by this this energy you say and the stamina and and charm and perhaps this deep desire to to connect and there's something i 
this goes back to the diary again his, that his mother wrote. Yeah, I'm so glad you picked up on that because when I first wrote the book, I had yeah. a totally different chapter. The first, so this sometimes happens, not very often for me, but I wrote my first chapter was very different. It was a review of other people's attempts to write books about George Weidenfeld. <laughs> it was slightly meta and quite bitchy. And I was kind of going through these other accounts and kind of picking them apart. And, and I showed it to my sisters and they both said, it's not working for us because we yeah. don't get a sense of who the character is. And I went to Vienna and fortunate, very fortunate, his daughter, George's daughter, sent me this mother's diary from the first year of his life and it's not just a kind of he he ate this thing and kind of his kind of no hoops and no there's she, advice in it there and had, i want to quote i want to quote some advice here go on don't forget that many of the best moments in life are created by romance and this is thanks to women interactions with women only those in whom something eternally feminine, to quote Goethe, are intoxicating and refine the mind. What do you think that she was getting at with the Goethe reference? I've thought about that a, a fair amount. You know, what what is a mother doing? The, the Her child is months old. Yeah. She's giving life advice. She's also talking about the remarkable legacy of the family her family goes back many generations full of rabbis and she passes that on she talks about the political context she talks about what was going on right i mean she really was a quite a good writer uh, and that's why it was so fascinating you know i think she what she does and she does in other episodes she's adding expectations to him she's giving him kind of a path through a roadmap it's not just kind of here's a bit of life advice about women and quoting goethe that's my question though eternally feminine is it is it like wisdom is it the divine is it mother earth is it beauty i don't know but like, i think what was interesting i think it could be all of those it's just I think driving it's also, for that it's something i also felt i think there's a, another part of the quote where she gives a sense that women are quite complex and they are uh i think she was when i if i remember the quote she's also trying to it was quite enlightened in terms of the role of women they're not just the sexual objects there's some there's there's more than romance with women i think because i think she was a quite a strong character so he was brought up with a very strong mother and a grandmother who lived with them so i think he would that kind of maternal grandmother kind of influence was really important to him and so when he has these relationships later on in life, these work relationships. You know, I, I said earlier about how he was very disrespectful to his work colleagues, but there was other work colleagues who, Antonia Fraser, the writer, worked with him very early on in the 50s and spoke only well of George and the way that as a young woman, he supported her and her work, encouraged her. And there's other women as well who, who spoke similarly. So again, it's a complex picture you have a mother who's encouraging him to respect women who's quoting goethe to him i mean yeah. well read i mean goethe was obviously very popular but still a sh sign of being well read you know to a baby i mean d did george ever read the diary i don't know I'm well, not he might be must have, that's what i'm thinking he must have <laughs> i don't know if he did i mean according yeah. to his according to his daughter laura who was very generous with all these papers and documents he only looked forward he wasn't interested in looking back he very rarely talked about the past, mm -hmm. his childhood, having to flee Austria as, as a Jewish refugee. He, he, his parents never talked about his two grandmothers being killed in the Holocaust, even though he spent his whole career focused on anti-Semitism, supporting Jewish causes in Israel. I mean, in all the speeches that I read, he never once mentions, never once his grandmothers. In fact, when I started the project, I asked Laura, how did his grandmothers die? And she didn't know. And so mm -hmm. I actually had to do the research. And then it was upon me to break the news to her about mm -hmm. where they died, how they died, which was, you know, difficult and upsetting for Laura. And, you know, that was part of it. But it shows you that George himself was looking for. And I'm very, that's very familiar to me. My grandmother never talked about the family's past. We lost members of our family in the Holocaust. She didn't tell her kids. I mean, I had to find out. Yeah. Just a couple final questions here or comments. It's quite sad because he, he seems to have found 
real love at the end of his life in, in his last mm. marriage but he was and maybe this is a sign of it and it is it it's wagnerian he was genuinely seriously painfully jealous and this is a sign of true love i think well was he painfully jealous or was he cuckolded i mean those are, i mean and what's the difference I mean, yeah. his, 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 you know, I mean, are you are you paranoid if you've got reason to believe that people are out to get you? I don't know. At the very end of his life, he was with this woman um, called Annabelle. Annabelle, yeah. And he spoke very highly about her in his syrupy autobiography. This is a whole different subject about how few books about publishing which were any good. Written by yes, publishing. yes, self-serving. Yeah, I'd love to talk to you about that because I've yeah. read a lot of books about publishing and... There's almost, I mean, there's on a, maybe one or two which are any good. Here's a prime example of a terrible book written by a publisher. It's basically just a, a list of people he knew. It's, name, it's a book of name dropping. Incidentally, Thomas, I've got to, I'm going to have someone on the show to talk who's read a lot of publishers' histories and memoirs. He's going to be giving us his top 10. Oh, I'd be very interested to know about that list because I, I read quite a few books. So anyway, Annabelle, he, he at the very end of his life, she was spent time with another guy, elderly guy. Elderly guy, yeah. And, and, and you know, I had long conversations with really? her about what happened, and she explained it that it was a friend and they were, he was ill. But George told his friends that he felt abandoned, which yeah. is very sad. But what he did have was his friendship, and you alluded to earlier, this guy called Matthias Doffner and other friends, but particularly, I think, Matthias Doffner, who... In him, I think he did find companionship and brotherhood or whatever. The, I don't know how to describe the nature of that relationship. So, yeah. Fraternity or something. Fraternity. yeah. Fraternity. Comfort. Um, just finally, then, uh, what did a publisher need to possess? What characteristics, what skills set from 1950 to 2000 versus now? Oh, that's a good question. I mean, one of the things we haven't talked about is George had a real presence in the United States. So he yeah. actually he he teamed up with failed presence and, and Getty, and they bought Grove Press. You know, this extraordinary right. backlist. She yeah, spent they, a significant amount of money, thirty huge million dollars. Money, and then they also they ran all these literary conferences around the world, uh, which were attended by the great the good of the American literary world as well as other worlds. Um, so. This book is not just about British publishing, but it is also about North American publishing. Yes, and so to, yes. to, to answer your question, what were the skills, what were the attributes, and how were they different? I mean, certainly, we've talked about his perspicacity, his doggedness, his championing. It was kind of a one-man, one-person show, so he had to be responsible not just for the human resources but also the financing you know there wasn't this big corporate world no. one person would do the finances another person would do the yeah. production another person would do the human resources i mean he obviously had a team of people but there was much more on his shoulders than in a very large corporate entity when it's divided there's so many people that you can have a head of marketing you can have a head of direct of publishing you can have you know, somebody who's in charge of distribution and so on. So I think there was more on his, he, he had, he was responsible for more aspects. I think it was also more informal. So you could have more of an impact, you know, the profit and loss accounts or the statements, you know, when you'd work out how much money a, a, a book was likely to make, they didn't really come about until the 80s. So before that, it was much more back of the envelope. It was more about your your horse sense, your, your, would a book make 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 work? I also think there was a, for him, but also there was a, a, a generation of European refugees, both in New mm. York and London, who came over, yep. most of Jewish, not all Jewish, who made a huge influence on publishing. They brought this yep. sen sensibility of literary merit, but also... A commercial sense, a kind of a tradesman sense, and a whole wave of new authors, both in terms of people from the 18th, 19th century, early 20th century, but also new authors, new talent, and really transformed, I think, the world of publishing in both Europe, particularly the Anglo-Saxon publishing world. And you can see that in terms of who became the, the heads of those. I also think George... Real, was, uh, sorry, real personalities. Real personalities. But also he was an internationalist. You know, I think yeah. until then, especially in Britain, but also I think in America, it was very much about the English word and English text. And George was, we talked about co-productions earlier, but he was really important to him, was publishing in multiple countries at the same time, yeah. uh, teaming up with other publishers, 
Working he had a real facility with language, right? Didn't he? Extraordinary. He's a total polyglot, and and I'm, I mean, we talked about the Frankfurt Book Fair, but he'd go to a lot of other book fairs, whether it be Jerusalem or New York or wherever it was, somewhere in Spain or France. But he also, and he was very much part of the kind of these international prizes and literary prizes. He had these conferences. To, the international scene was really important to him. And I think that was new. How is it different from today? It's obviously much more tightly controlled. Budgets are much more tightly controlled. You don't go out for your long lunches anymore. Marketing budgets. Serialization, fascinating to see how much money he was able to rise from these editors, the New York Times or the London Times. I mean, we're talking about over a million dollars of money being paid for serializations of books. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, today, I mean, unheard of amounts of money was being, you know, uh, today. I mean, very rarely would you get anything close to that. And by serialization, these would be multi-day events. Today, if you're yeah. serialized, normally it's a one-off. So yeah. that, was, that was part of his budget. So when he spent, I think, $2 million for Mick yeah. Jagger's biography, part of the way he put the deal together, it was a deal-making yeah. situation, is he sold, pre-sold the serial rights. And then he yeah. pre-sold the rights around the world. And he kind of kind of put this kind of deal together. Today, that would be very hard to do. And, you know, with the world of Amazon and so on, you know, it's, it's much more about how many units you can do. And, and, and the number of, I mean, you know all this, but the number of books that are sold or, or printed, you know, we talk about now in the low thousands, typically, you know, when a book comes out. Back then, it was thousands and thousands and thousands. Yes, because yes, so it was cheaper to- per unit. Yeah. You had to have the capital in place. You had yeah. to have the shops in place. And when Lolita was, he got Lolita published, 20,000 books were pre-printed while they were waiting to get permission to be able to go forward. So the mechanics changed and, and his risk. risk was much higher. So he, you know, he was overextended. He was always doing personal loans and kind of, kind of ducking, <laughs> diving, much less corporate, much more informal, uh, you know, and yet his personal overhead was extraordinary. I mean, you would never have, I mean, the amount of money he was spending on travel, hotels, yeah. hospitality, unheard of again now. Uh, so many different changes. But what I mean, about the, uh, not the changes so much as the skills? Like what do you need now then versus what he had? Yeah, so I think one of the things that he, I mean, again, we talked about, and I've talked about this with various publishers. I, I asked one really successful senior, senior member of, the largest publishing house in the world about what makes a good book what's the skills you required and she said one of the key things that over time well she said two things one is her experience of the people who are successful are the mavericks she used the word mavericks right isn't it harder to be a maverick now though yes absolutely but she said it was critical and she said the second thing was that when you and i think this is true of george when you see success, she said, this is, I, I was blown. My mind was blown when she said that. She said, when, a, when, a, when a, an idea of a book comes in or a manuscript comes in and she'd be reviewing at her level. And then the question is, do you invest? How much do you invest as a senior executive in a project? The book is pitched to, pitched to her by an editor. And, you know, they, they do the P&L. They do kind of, here's the marketing campaign. Here's a, here's a summary. She said, what she looks at, it's not the book. It's not the marketing campaign. It's the editor. Has the editor had success recently in other projects? Okay. And that is like, what? As a writer, I'm like, what? Are you telling me it's not about the book? It's not about the writer? <laughs> and she said, from, from a senior executive level, it's about the editor. How much success have they had? And, and, and that's why she said, you often see rainmakers this remarkable thing that one person will again and again succeed. And the reason why is that this success attracts success. That person will then get the marketing budget. They'll get the support of the senior executives. Mm, And obviously they have to have some basic skills. They have to have- That's the opposite of Maverick though. If if it's tested already and they've already got it- No, because she said that because they go together, the prime- identifying attribute of those editors she's learned over the years is their mavericks. They are people who do their own thing. They have the ability to see quality when they see it. They don't do what most editors do, which is, I know you know this, most editors today, they will support a book that has something like it recently has succeeded. 
Oh, there's a book about vampires. Let's do a book about vampires. Oh, teenage vampires. Oh, there's a book about our first Second World War fighter pilot who survived against all odds. Let's do a book about, you know, that's what happens. And she said, the Mavericks don't do that. They're able to see beyond those trends. And that's why the word Maverick is so important. And that's what George could do. Very good. Well, there's one thing that we didn't talk about one characteristic of uh, George's that we didn't mention, and that is enthusiasm. And I want to yeah. thank you for your enthusiasm oh, today. You. It's been it's been really great talking oh, with you about you. this thank book. I really, you can tell I've just yeah. loved this subject. Yeah. Uh, it's been such a, I mean, I'm going to say a privilege to work on this project. And I'm not a particularly well-read person. And it's been, for me, the opportunity to read these incredible writers and to yeah. get to know more about George Weidenfeld. Wonderful. Well, people can do that by reading your book. It's called The Maverick, and it's published by Weidenfeld and Nicholson. Thank you. Thank you, Thomas. Thank you you so much. And in the U.S., it's published by Pegasus. Pegasus. Okay. Well, thanks again. It's been a real pleasure. Absolutely. Take care. Okay. You too.